Hey, before we get started, I do want to mention that the show that we're talking about this week revolves around an incident of graffiti. And because the graffiti is sort of, ahem, adult, some of the talk is a little bit adult. So if you have kids around and you don't want them to be inspired to talk about or perform adult graffiti, maybe you close their ears for this one. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Linda. Stephen, I don't know if you know this, but true crime, it is having a moment. I have heard that. Yes, you were talking about shows like Serial and Making a Murderer, and if I'm not mistaken, a couple of episodes of Dateline. That's right, just a couple. And for every popular form, there are parodies, and this week we're talking about Netflix's true crime parody, American Vandal. It's an eight-episode series supposedly trying to find the truth behind a vulgar act of vandalism at an American high school. Yeah, this is one of those shows that seemed to fly under the radar a little bit until it came out, and then all of a sudden we heard a lot about it at once. That's right. And on the panel today are two of the people from whom we heard about it. One is our regular panelist, Glenn Weldon, who writes for NPR.org. Hi, Glenn. Hey, yeah, this was making me happy a couple weeks ago, and it still is. That's right. And with us this week in our fourth chair is our friend, the writer and podcaster behind Slate's Dear Prudence, the former co-editor of The Toast. Mallory Ortberg. We're so excited to have you back, Mallory. Thank you for calling me your friend. Of course. (laughs) You're our dear friend. And when I saw that you were talking about American Vandal, I was so excited. The general structure of American Vandal is that there are two kids who are supposedly making this documentary about uh, Dylan, the kid at their school who has been accused of an act of vandalism in which, what did we decide we were going to say? 27 penises spray painted. On 27 cars. On 27 cars in the faculty parking lot. Mm -hmm. Dylan stands accused. He stands accused. He stands expelled. Yeah, he slumps accused, we might say. Slumps accused. Because Dylan is sort of... You know, the taxonomy of like male leaning on this show is remarkable (laughs) (laughs) between slouching, slumping, sagging, Mm -hmm. cascading. It's true. It's remarkable. It's true. Mallory, what was it about this show that kind of drew you in so much? On the one hand, I'm like, I'm a very simple man with a very simple sense of humor. So as soon as (laughs) I watched the trailer and I realized it was going to be like an eight episode deep dive into asking the question, who drew 27 penises Mm -hmm. on cars in the faculty lot? Mm -hmm. Um, I was I was in. I also had a sense of, oh, man, is this going to be ridiculous? Like, can I really watch eight episodes of this? Is it just the one joke and no more? Mm -hmm. And of course, the answer to that was no, it is so much more. Um, It's such a rich study of a certain type of Southern California high school dirtbaggery. It really um, is. Kind of like Kyle Mooney, before he was on SNL, did this series called Inside SoCal that was one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. Um, And anything that kind of picks apart at like certain types of white male masculinity, I love, because so often people forget that that's actually a thing you can examine. Yeah. They're just like, oh, that, that that's a thing, the thing that normal people are. Um, and it's like, no, it's very specific. It has its own ticks, and it, it never gets uh, sort of like teased apart or, or examined sometimes the way that other identities are. Yeah. And so between that, just like having grown up in Southern California and knowing all of these people, but never seeing them on TV, it was the first time since like, I think, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that I was like, oh, that guy, that guy that I went to high school with, but never see on TV, he's yeah. here. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. The scene where they really had me 
was this moment when they're kind of showing all these different videos that Dylan has taken of himself just like acting up in school. And he's just going over to the pencil sharpener and he won't stop (laughs) sharpening his pencil. It's so aggressive. It's so banal. It's so petty. And that's never something you see in like high school dramas or comedies, right? There's always like big drama. And it's like, yes, that happened all the time. Just some jerk in class is just sharpening a pencil and there's nothing else to it. And it's driving everyone nuts. That's when they had me. It's just dominating the space in a a kind of blank way. You're not really doing anything, but you're just saying, I am what is going on in this room right now. And I think there are... I'm a boy. I make noise. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So, Glenn, you were also an early adopter. What is the appeal of this for you? It took 15 minutes for this show to get its hooks in me, and I know exactly when. It was... It's a scene in which the two student filmmakers, Peter and Sam, are comparing the stylistic and anatomical differences between one set of photographs of 27 penises on 27 mm-hmm. cars and another set of photographs involving the penises that Dylan would draw on a whiteboard in every class. morning uh-huh. in class. So they suggest that these differences might prove that Dylan didn't do it. And I should have just sat there and gone, Puh! instead, my instinct reaction was, well, that's hardly exculpatory because A, <laughs> they're rendered in different medium. Right, and B, exactly. they're in diff- on a different scale. And, right. and, and C, it's been established that they were rushed in the parking lot. Right. So that would also affect... Spray and that's paint. What it's like, Spray paint you might not bother with as many details. Exactly. Yes. And that's that's when I knew, oh, this show is working on me in a yeah. way that I didn't expect it to. <laughs> yeah. Because, again, it's like Mallory said, it's, it's one joke and you think you know what it's going to be. You think right. it's going to be, I thought, mockumentary, I know what this is going to be, broad gags... Spinal Tap, it's not. It is. This is better than Spinal Tap. It is. It is. It, it is so... It, the joke of it is, of course, all this sober attention, all these technical resources, all this animation. <laughs> oh, I love the animation. <laughs> Devoted to something so small and juvenile yeah. and dumb. I didn't laugh a lot watching this. I got invested. Yeah. Completely <laughs> invested. This was the weird... The weird part for me was I got two episodes into this... And on the one hand, I was really enjoying it. And I was like, it's funny. I, I do appreciate the depth of its understanding of these true crime things, yeah. particularly like it really has a good feel for not just generally true crime, but what true crime feels like right now. Right. I did appreciate that. But the, the ominous re- plunking of low notes right. on an off screen <laughs> right. piano of doom. Right. But the reason why. I found it difficult to stop watching it was that I wanted to know the answer. Yes. Which is very difficult to do in a mystery that's a parody of a mystery where kind of the whole point is how stupid it is and who cares. Mm -hmm. They kind of try to amp it up a little bit by explaining that, of course, if it was this many cars and this many paint jobs, you're actually talking about a large amount of money and the kid would could really be in a lot of trouble. However, they they keep going back to how ridiculous it is. And yet you get to that point where you're like, I must know. I must know. That's such a good point because, yes, this show, it's not winking. It's not like, yeah, this is really dumb. Like it has that beautiful, like pathetic, tragic stupidity. It's it's it's. <laughs> Susan Sontag should write about this for a hundred years. Someone should just lock her in a room. I don't know if she's dead, actually. They should bring her back to life and lock yeah. her in a room. I always forget if someone's dead. But, like, yes, as you said, like, there, there is a way in which this totally will affect Dylan's entire future. And there's another way in which this matters not at all. Right. And so when he's thinking about his future, it's this beautifully tragic moment. It's just not the way I thought things were going to go. You know, I was going to graduate high school go to Boulder with Mackenzie in the fall, get my degree in like engineering or some and then move up north, work at a snowboard shop. 
I mean, at this point, best case scenario is me and Mackenzie do long distance. But like, I mean, that basically just means I'd have to jerk myself off every night. I mean, honestly, she'd probably just break up with me. So I would still have to jerk myself off every night. Jimmy Tetro as Dylan yeah. is just taking mouth breathing to a high art. This oh, kid true. is so good. The young Channing tatum <laughs> of that kid. Yeah. My friend, when we were watching this, said he looks like the unrefined ore that you pull out of the mines they got Channing Tatum from. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you think, Stephen? Yeah, we've talked before on this show about the specificity of the show Documentary Now mm-hmm. and how that show can go very, very deep and esoteric and each canvas is 22 minutes long. Because this show is parodying long-form documentary, it has to work on a much larger canvas. So this this thing is collectively in the over the course of 8 episodes, it's four and a half hours long. And so it has to hit every beat. You know, we've talked about how, you know how engrossed we are by the by the plot of it, but I think just the mechanics of the parody, it is so crucial that they get every little piece of mechanics right from the animation that Glenn mentioned which I think gives which gave me the biggest laugh. Yeah. Little computer per- animated like particularly yeah. the computer animation of a of a love scene on a dock. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Uh-huh. Um but where this show got its hooks in me was the simple quality of the voiceover of Peter, one of the documentarians, is is narrating this story. And I, I want to I do want to call out actors' names wherever possible because they're not in the opening credits. This kid Tyler Alvarez, yep. whose background is in like Nickelodeon shows, sure. he manages to a sound like a teenager and b sound a lot like like this American Life adjacent crime shows sounds a lot like public radio where it sounds it, he manages to capture the the mixture of kind of low energy overwroughtness mm-hmm. and, uh, and and it's it's so pitch perfect the music on this show is so funny i dug it i i think that if you're not into the premise if you're not super familiar with the shows that it's parodying i could see it landing a little bit differently but i i really really dug it you know, I, I saw an interview with them where they were talking about the, the actual filmmakers, where they were talking about their influences. And they talked quite a bit about Sarah Koenig and I think who's the the host of Serial. And I think you do feel I think there is a lot of Sarah Koenig in the way that Peter and Sam are particularly that Peter Maldonado, who's kind of the lead filmmaker, that he goes in with this attitude of, I want to prove that maybe Dylan didn't do it. But then over the course of it, he spends so much time examining his own, like, am I being fooled? <laughs> am I am I falling for this? Or have I failed to consider this? And in the same way that Serial often in the first season in particular turned into this kind of self-examination for her, Peter is doing a lot of that same the instant presence of the documentarian's mind. It was remarkable to me, because I don't consume a lot of true crime stuff, how much we as a culture have already internalized these rhythms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeah. revelations being slowly parceled out, the followed down to dead ends, and then double backing and then examining another piece of evidence that we've already seen and then re-examining it and re-examining it. I said, you know, it's not laugh out loud funny, but it's just so engrossing. And I heard from people saying, what are you, crazy? It's it, it's hilarious. It, do you not see how sharp this satire is? And I 
essay, that this doesn't feel like satire to me. This is much more loving. This is much mm-hmm. more like it's precious, like it's holding this form mm-hmm. very, very closely. And I, I, that's why I think it works. Mm-hmm. It's also getting it much more than the story it's telling. I mean, there is commentary on what high school is like in 2017 America. Yeah. There's commentary on the criminal justice system, on biases in documentaries. There's a lot going on. And also, this show about midway through takes a tonal shift where it starts to comment on itself more. Sure. It does it, it unfolds the way a serialized radio show would after a few episodes mm-hmm. feel the need to comment on reactions to the first few episodes. So there's right. there's some formal cleverness to this show as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I was just thinking too, it, it's so true what you were saying about how Peter starts to turn a lot of this on himself. There's this beautiful moment and I think about the third or the fourth episode. They've been spending a lot of time analyzing video footage from this party, Nana's party. <laughs> this kid threw at her grandma's house. And there's just this wonderful little moment where they're walking back to the shed with the girl who had hosted the party to try to find a can of spray paint. And she just says, yeah, it was really crazy. Remember when the cops came? And Sam looks back at the camera and he just says, oh, we uh, we actually weren't there. And just that moment of they have been spending hours going over this footage looking for evidence And they also didn't get to go to that party. Uh And you know that so much of that is their way of trying to make up for, like, finding a way to have been there. Yeah, it's like 10 Things I Hate About You, directed by Errol Morris. That's the way I'm thinking (laughs) of it. I mean, basically, the infrastructure itself is enough to kind of keep you wanting more. But they do build a very believable high school with some very believable, you know, creeps and, and... kids and Kraz, Kraz, the teachers. Every school has that teacher who wants to be cool. (laughs) He's so cool. And I love that this show didn't let him do that, that this show pointed out usually the teacher who really wants his students to think that he's cool, most of the students have nothing but contempt for him. Maybe some pity mixed in. Nobody's falling for it. Nobody's like, how awesome that this 29-year-old guy wants to like talk to me about porn or whatever. Yeah, no, it's Um, true. It's true. And I think there is so much truth in particularly the late episodes, which I felt there's kind of this, uh, it's not just the tonal shift around the middle toward more examination of the the project itself. But in the last couple of episodes, there's a lot of very, there's a lot of fairly serious consideration of consequences yeah. of a wide variety of and class. actions. Yeah, there's discussions of class as yeah, well. Yeah, but there is, I mean, I don't know that I've really seen in real true crime projects as much self-examination there's a moment late in the in the series where a girl who's who winds up being kind of tangentially connected to all of this mm, yeah. points out that because at one point they thought she might be more important to it than she was a bunch of kind of personal stuff about her wound up being in this documentary that didn't really have any reason to be there except that it kind of created color and it was part of them showing their own journey and it goes by fairly quickly but it's a fairly serious, I think, indictment of like when you make a show like this and you're trying to do all of this, like, you know, they show the entire world around this crime that happened. Right. Like, how much do you need to drag in people who, when you haven't yet finished your investigation, when you start, yep. you don't know yet whether what you're revealing about them is important. And I think that has come up in real projects. And I was kind of surprised to suddenly feel like they were really making that point fairly directly. Yeah, how often this show ruminates on ethics. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting for something that's supposed to be a bunch of penis jokes, yeah. or at least on the outside is supposed to be just that. Yeah. 
That's right? true. And, you know, you can certainly argue how effectively they managed to do this. But, like, you know, given that this is about, you know, a guy who is presumed to have drawn a lot of uh, penises on a bunch of cars. And there's like an episode early on that is focused primarily around investigating the sexual history of, of a, a female high school student. The the attempt, at least of the show, doesn't feel like it's to humiliate and expose her. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's very much about whether or not they can trust the guy who claims to have done it. And it's done in this way where there's not, at least on screen, there's not a sense of, you know, isn't it hilarious or embarrassing that she did that so mm-hmm. much as just, I'm not sure that this could have happened because she's very, very good looking. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's really hard to pull off to do like a deep dive investigation into the sexual history of of that character and to do it in a way that is not like, oh, this is embarrassing for her. Right. Oh, she shouldn't have done this. Oh, we have power over her because we know this now. Right. That's that's really, I don't know that I've seen that before on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Can we talk about the ending? Not spoilery, but I have read a lot of stuff online saying, you know, this ending is pretty ambiguous. And I, I, I push back on that. No, it's not. Right? Right? We all know. Right? I also think that en- that ending plays out the way the ending to so many of these stories plays out. So mm-hmm. I, I felt it was a very plausible way to end it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, uh, if you're an actor and you're per- playing a real person, that's one of the toughest acting challenges out there. Because when you aim a camera at a real person and not an actor, a l- layer of self-consciousness kicks in mm-hmm. and it affects exa- how they talk, how they move. And so these actors, these very young actors who have been trained to get all self-consciousness out of them have to kind of let some of that leach back into yeah. their performances yeah. in a way so we feel it because it's it, it lacks that veneer, that slight layer of artificiality we all kind of collectively buy in scripted work. Right. But in unscripted work, we, we just know what we're looking at. We know yeah. that this is a person that they just aimed a camera at. Yeah. Anyway, uh, come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH and tell us what you thought about American Vandal or tweet us at PCHH which many of you already have. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, what is making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Amazon Publishing and Matthew Fitzsimmons' new book, Cold Harbor, the thrilling third installment in his Wall Street Journal best-selling Gibson Vaughn series. The story that began with the short drop and continued in Poison Feather reaches a new level of suspense as Vaughn is freed from a CIA black site prison only to discover he's not free from his past. Listeners of this podcast will receive 50% off the ebook edition of this series by visiting Amazon.com slash Cold Harbor NPR. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? Big Mouth is an animated series on Netflix, which stars Nick Kroll and a bunch of other people who are great. And it's uh, and it is disgusting and it's gross and it's juvenile and it's filthy because it's about puberty. And puberty is gross and disgusting <laughs> and filthy. It shares a lot of DNA on the surface. You think it shares a lot of DNA with Family Guy. Lots of quick cutaways, lots of very, very crude humor. But it is animated, literally, by by a different impulse, a much more humane impulse. And it is just as gross, but ultimately it's about something. And the women ha- are real characters. In any moment that Maya Rudolph appears as the hormone monstrous, uh, she is just kicking it out of the park. She is so precise in every choice she makes. And she is just... 
fantastic. The whole show is great. What's the premise of it? The premise is just a bunch of kids in uh, in uh, middle school going through puberty. Okay. Uh, a bunch of friends and uh, all the gross secretions and bodily functions that attend that. Nice. But man, uh, it is very, very funny. I wasn't prepared to like it as much as I did, but that's Big Mouth on Netflix. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? The funniest four and a half minutes I have seen in a long time. There are a lot of viral videos. I can't have seen them all. One was called to my attention a few days ago that is from 2008, but it was new to me. This guy named Chris Thrash acquired a full animatronic band from Showbiz Pizza, which was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which was kind of, it, it kind of folded into Chuck E. Cheese uh-huh. around 1990. Well, uh-huh. Showbiz Pizza uh, was the home of the Rockafire Explosion. And the Rockafire Explosion had a, a, a bear with kind of like a bass ukulele and a, and a keyboard playing gorilla. And, you know, kind of what you think of as like the Chuck E. Cheese band now. Just well, without sh- Charles Entertainment without Cheese. Without Charles Entertainment Cheese. <laughs> uh, when, I, when my son told me that was his name, he followed it up with the words, Dad, that's canon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this guy, Chris Thrash, acquired the rock, a, a version of the Rockafire Explosion and set it up and had them... Lip Sync, among other songs, Love in This Club by Usher (laughs) featuring Young Jeezy. (laughs) And... It, it, you know, it kind of works in the spirit of like bad lip syncing videos where, where it's, it syncs up really nice. Like Usher is, is synced to the bear with the ukulele. And it's amazing how easily this joke could grow stale over the course of a four and a half minute song. And yet it keeps unveiling little twists that get added throughout, like the sun with the face that rises up behind them and, and kind of sings along. When they get to Young Jeezy's rap, they bring out this fox with a ventriloquist dummy. And the dummy does Are the... Are you sure you really saw this as opposed <laughs> I, to, were you asleep? Yeah. I, I, some bad shrimp. If this was my dreams, I would be a, such a happier man. Anyway, the Young Jeezy rapping puppet goes along as the wolf holding the Young Jeezy puppet would go, hey, or ha-ha, <laughs> or yeah, it is. So the wolf's the hype man. The wolf is the hype man, and okay. the puppet is the rapper. Uh-huh. It's so unbelievably funny. And I then discovered, of course, there are more of them. Oh, I <laughs> so see. they have synced up the, the Rock of Fire explosion to Pop Lock and Drop It, to Hips Don't Lie, to uh, Lollipop by Lil Wayne. They're so funny. <laughs> Loving This Club by Usher featuring Young Jeezy, as performed by Showbiz Pizza's The Rock of Fire <laughs> <laughs> Explosion. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Mallory Ortberg, what is making you happy this week? Guys, what is making me happy this week is that I have finally gotten around to reading Middlemarch, which I have been putting off my entire adult life. And I've been really enjoying imagining that the great work of Casabon's life is uh, not the key to all metaphysics, but proving that werewolves are real. Mm-hmm. So I'm just reading George Eliot's greatest work and mentally substituting mythologies with lycanthropy at every opportunity <laughs> and just imagining that periodically like Dorothea is like, but werewolves are real and I will help him prove it. And that means everything to me. Like it's not about werewolves, but there's werewolves in it, you know? Uh-huh, sure. Um, this is what happens when you start watching Teen Wolf at a very formative time in your life. And oh, yeah. Then you just, you have a lot of feelings about werewolves, it turns out. As you should. It was this year. It was, I turned 30 <laughs> and I started watching Teen Wolf, <laughs> to be clear. Uh, that's the formative time in my life. I'm going through a second adolescence and it's not great. That is wonderful. Thank you so, so very much, Mallory Ortberg, for that unusual take on Middlemarch. <laughs> 
Anytime. Um, <laughs> so what is making me happy this week is an oldie but a goodie. I've talked before about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and this week was, I think it's fourth uh, heist Halloween episode, <laughs> and it always involves getting the entire squad in the police station involved in various uh, craziness. The most recent one, which is their Halloween episode, sort of uh, complemented the heist with some actual emotional content, which if you had told me that I would be able to buy emotional content from Andy Samberg when I started watching this show four years ago, I would have said doubtful. But in the time since then, as I have come to appreciate him more through this it actually was pretty moving, and uh, there's some emotional meaning in this particular Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode. So what is making me happy this week is the ability to breathe new life into an annual holiday episode, which I have a long history of not liking as a thing. <laughs> and before we go, I want to mention one other thing, which is that our friends at Code Switch have a live show coming up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. It is on Friday, November 10th at 8 p.m. It's at the Harris Theater in Chicago. Their guests will be... Hari Kondabolu. Oh, hey. Very cool, very cool. So you can get your tickets for that at nprpresents.org. We always, always recommend going out to see Code Switch. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPRMonkeyC. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at GH Weldon. You can follow Mallory at her old handle, only the evil version. That's E-V-I-L-M-A-L-L-E-L-I-S. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer emeritus, music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are bobbing your head to right now. So thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more folks to find the show. And we will see you all back here next week.